Welcome to Nothing Rhymes with Garrett's. I'm your host and titular figurehead, Chris Garrett's, joined by Sam Holberry. Sam, uh, I can't remember the last time we did this podcast. It was in months? January. Oh, January. Because we were teaching together in J term and you just decided one day, hey, we should record one of these. Because I told you this is. I don't know why. This is the most one of the most popular things we do on this, <laughs> this, this is just, network. It's just clickbait for Channel 39. I guess so. Point. That is basically how episodes of Nothing Rhymes with Garrett's come about. The two of us are talking and one of us or both of us, we kind of telepathically arrive at this sense of it's time to do another That's episode. That's right. There's no good reason for this. <laughs> but the world needs it somehow. But at least a few people do. So if you are somehow new to Nothing Rhymes with Garrett's, let me explain to you the rather silly conceit of the show. Then we'll get into the actual reason we're here which is basically just two of us to talk about stuff so uh i have a rather odd last name not just in this country but even in my my ancestral homeland of germany there are only about 60 gerritzes i think and people tend to not know how to pronounce it and i often have to explain and they say something like, oh it rhymes with carrots and i say good thought no it's one syllable it's gerritz uh, and then someone will say oh is it gears no it's gerritz uh, is it gers no and I have to say, well, there's no T there. But in German, the Z is a TS sound, so it's implied. But anyway, the upshot of all this is that throughout all my almost 45 years of life, I've yet to encounter a word in English that rhymes with my last name, which is why I have these awkward conversations. And so we are on a continuing intermittent quest to find a word that rhymes in English, again, with my last name. And so the way this works is we each have prepared three words that we have brought ostensibly to see if they rhyme with my last This is really science when you think about it. It's empirical and experimental. And one of these days we'll arrive at this. And in the process, maybe we'll talk about some stuff too. So Sam, are you ready to play Nothing Rhymes? I am so ready. I am so ready too. So I will take the privilege of starting. Sam, the first word I've been thinking about is quarantine. Does quarantine rhyme with Garrett's? Quarantine, quarantine. I don't think quarantine rhymes with Garrett's. Nothing rhymes with Garrett's, but I've thought a lot about the word quarantine. Not, not that we've really been under quarantine. Right. Like, we're, we're kind of American-wise loosely using the term. It's a very American version of quarantine. But there have been restrictions in our life for the last really like hundred some days. If I heard a, another episode on this channel, like it's been a hundred plus days now, right? Mm-hmm. Of sheltering in place, social distancing. Like you've been at Bethel a fair amount. I've started to come once or twice a week into the summer, but life feels different. It's it's a little bit more restricted. And so, Sam, I'm curious. Do you know the etymology of the word quarantine? Have you heard this? I have yet? no idea. So this apparently comes from 17th century Venice. So it's from the Venetian dialect of Italian, and quarantine simply means 40 days. So Venice was a trading port, oh. and they dealt with communicable diseases, and they realized that this is a way to to stop the spread. And so in the event of some kind of plague or other disease, sailors would have to spend 40 days isolated from the rest of the population, hence quarantine. So we're into like a centine or something. That makes so much sense. Right. And so... um, so that that's where it comes from, and that's you know there's some good public health kind of uh, rationale behind it, but there's there's kind of a deeper meaning. Uh, earlier, this is from March. Uh, Notre Dame University publishes something called the Church Life Journal from the McGrath Institute for Church Life, and I found an interesting essay by a Catholic theologian uh, from Greece named John Manasakis called "The Origins of Quarantine in Lent," because quarantine forty days should also suggest a different kind. Of experience, which is those are the 40 days leading up to Easter in the Christian calendar, the season of Lent. 
And so here's how he was reflecting on Lent. And this was March, so it was actually Lent. But I wonder if you want to respond to this, or maybe there's some thoughts here. He wrote, Every Lent is a quarantine, for the practices observed during Lent meant to place the world and our daily interactions with the world and with others under suspension. So, for example, fasting is the classic discipline here. Uh, for as long as we are attached to the world, we remain bound to it by a double bind. The more we occupy the world and we let ourselves be preoccupied by worldly affairs, the more difficult it becomes for us to understand what it means to live in the world. Fasting or other disciplines introduce a distance between ourselves and the world, the very distance that allows us to look and reflect upon the world in our worldly existence. And so my question for you, Sam Mulberry, do you feel like you have experienced something of a fast in these hundred days that has let you look on the world and yourself differently? Have you learned anything about yourself in this kind of contemplative? You know, I, I have. And, and I will say um, I'm somebody who self-proclaimed is like I have monastic tendencies, yeah. um, which is why it's good that I got married and had kids because like like otherwise I, I would be a non-monastic monastic. Like I just – I'm somebody who has – patterns in his life and sometimes those patterns become ruts and i will say one of the things that this actually has done is broke me out of some of that um but then also it absolutely has that feel um uh i've definitely kind of learned a lot about about myself and sort of shifted up my practices so even as i'm saying this i'm forgetting the exact question you asked no, I mean, what if you learned about yourself or about the world by having some distance yes because I, th I think his point is one we think about a lot as teachers at a place yeah. like bethel well, it's very easy right. to conform to worldly patterns maybe we need to disrupt them somehow. and now i'm remembering why i was saying what i was saying because i'm i'm sort of like um, dodging something which is going to attach to one of my words because yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do that too much. But I, I, I am far healthier um, than I was when the rhythms of my life are far healthier and I actually physically feel far healthier. Um, and I think – so the thing I've learned about myself is how especially – I mean, you and I are both people who who work very hard or at least spend a lot of time working. I'll put it that way. I spend a lot of Not time. Not always efficient, but yes, right? Yeah, and I don't know if it's always for the best and I don't know if it's always helpful. But like, like I am here a, a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and this has forced me to – even little things like the buildings don't open until 7. And they still don't open until 7, which means I spend – an extra hour that I would have otherwise been here in the mornings I'm spending at home. Um, and I've been able to think really intentionally about how I spend that. And also there is, uh, and I deeply miss the distractions of like the, that, that people create at work, but I've come here and not had those as I've worked throughout this semester. And it means that um, there are more moments where I will come home and not really bring work home with me. Mm -hmm. So I realize the thing that I'm that I'm that I'm thinking about and maybe I'll I'll bounce this question back to you is if and I won't make this if we were to find out that January 1, 2021 we snapped back into actual normal life. Magical cure, vaccine that everybody gets right away and we're back to regular life. What are the lessons that you hope to have that that you hope to um, actually implement in your own life. Because I'm. this is where I'm at now. I'm thinking, because we're at the middle, uh, not even the middle point of our summer break, but kind of in the middle point of our summer break. And I'm starting to think, okay, we come thinking about this spring. We're in a lot of meetings planning for this, or excuse me, this fall. We're in a lot of meetings planning for that. And I'm trying to think like, what are the things that I've done in the last couple of months 
that I need to find a way to continue to do. Yeah, no, I, I've been asking myself the same question because this is finite, right? Like, I mean, it feels longer and longer, but like, I think we have some sense that one way or another it will end. Mm -hmm. This is not a permanent adjustment. And so we should be thinking about what we can learn. I mean, just like Lent does this, right? It's, it, it's the thing you do for a period of time and then you emerge into something very different. I guess the first thing I want to acknowledge is like, I'm in a very privileged position. Absolutely. Right? Like, I've got the resources to be able to stay home as much as I need. I'm in a good home place in that um, you know, my wife was working part-time. The work she continued to do, she could do at distance. We had spent a sabbatical together, homeschooling, off on our like, – it felt like we had prepared for all this in 2016 when we were homeschooling the kids in the cabin in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And neither of our jobs disappeared, too. And neither of our jobs disappeared. Um, it, it couldn't be easier. That said, I think the first thing I've learned is I've never felt – I think use your word healthier. Like, I mean, it's work has been fruitful. I don't think I'm working anymore, but like the amount of writing I got done was incredible. Um, I think my balance of like homework life, even though I was actually working at home, I didn't come into Bethel at all between mid-March and probably the first week of June. But like I figured out how to kind of structure my day in ways that, okay, this time I'm really doing this work. Um, and then this time with my family. And so I'd already been thinking a lot about this in the months running up to COVID, but I mean, I was talking about this with my wife yesterday, when this all ends, I mean, maybe I don't actually need to be here every single day, or maybe there are days where I can leave at noon, or I mean, like there, maybe I can actually just kind of put firmer boundaries up around work time. Uh, and the final thing I've learned is to go back to your monastic illusion, that I mean, this is a somewhat <laughs> very American version of an aesthetic existence, right? We, we're, and what I mean there is uh, one of my favorite writers is Kathleen Norris, who's Protestant, but is, uh, I think, a, an oblast, it's called, with the Benedictine community. And she writes a lot about what she learned from the Benedictines. And her version of asceticism is, how do we live intentionally under reduced circumstances? And it's amazing how much quickly moves into that non-essential category, Right. And, and how much, um, for me, it's coffee. Like I, I cannot believe how much expensive coffee I was buying and how much time I was spending in coffee shops before this completely unnecessarily. Now I still will get some of that coffee, but like I realized I can actually work around my kids more. I don't have to remove myself to a third place in order to do that kind of work. Um, just like the way we shop is different, the way we meal plan has been different. Um, the way we eat has been different. And, and like those are the kind of lessons I want to learn because it will end at a certain point, um, probably sometime next year. Okay, that's long enough on quarantine. That yeah, was... well, and, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out my first word and it's going to echo everything we just talked about. So this might actually be a, a, a relatively short conversation around this word, um, but I actually have a feeling this one is pretty close to rhyming when, with Garrett's. Okay. Uh, let me know how this works. Yeah. My word is simple. Simplify. Does that rhyme with Gertz? It's plus or minus two syllables. No, it does not rhyme with Gertz. <laughs> Nothing rhymes with Gertz. So, I, so I mean, like I said, this echoes a lot. So, I think we were thinking along the same track, and we won't for this whole episode. Um, <laughs> I, I, I promise you that. Um, but I, I told you as we talked a little bit before. I said like. I have one and a half words that are quarantine-ish, but I'm trying to be positive in, in mm -hmm. as I as I pick my words and. Um, I think that's been my biggest takeaway from this is the the ability to simplify and the need to simplify. And this is why I was kind of trying to dodge a little bit of what you were what you were asking because it's <laughs> well, like, well, that's actually what I want to talk about here too. Um, but I want to talk about it in a different way, which is as we plan for what's coming up, 
um, I've been in a lot of meetings where we have built necessarily very complex structures Mm -hmm. to allow us to do things Mm face-to-face. And my tendency, as you know me pretty well, is to not shy away from complexity in order to try to do something. I am not... Um, I sometimes get get described as efficient. I think I'm effective, but not efficient because I actually will purposely do things in ways that aren't the most efficient because I like the way it gets done this way. Um, So I'm open to making things complex in order to achieve something. But I have more and more been in meetings or been thinking about things. So I'm talking about like we are thinking about our tutor centers and how they're going to work and how we can do face-to-face with social distancing and cleaning, all these restrictions and rules. And then I hit this point where I say, actually, what if we did the simpler thing? Mm-hmm. And sometimes the simpler thing is to say, uh, so so it's, it's almost a paradigm shift for me. Instead of thinking, how many things can I get face to face? It's saying, what if, what are the things I actually can afford to do online? Mm-hmm. And then really put the energy into the things that I absolutely want to be face to face. Instead of, let's try to be maximalist with face to face while still doing all of these things, um, which has been a big shift for me. Uh, because we were we are people who are actually in the middle of teaching an online course, right. deeply resistant to the notion of it. And I still am. I mean, I, I think as much as I feel like we were this spring – um, and when I say we, I mean Bethel and, and lots of other schools and our students absolutely like, we made this work, mm-hmm. but the overwhelming message I heard from students and faculty is like, this isn't what we want. And, and from, and again, that's from both populations. Um, but at the same time, I'm starting to shift a little bit to say, okay, what are the things we can, we can do online? So, so simplify is a big thing for me, even thinking about sort of professionally, um, I'm trying to shift my way of approaching these issues during this season to say, what actually can we do online that will be as effective? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I thought a lot about that. I'm trying to think too much about the fall yet because I don't have to be in those meetings yet. But I think necessarily I need to economize or simplify and what can I accomplish? You know? My version of this, now that you say that, is I think I've tried to simplify <laughs> fear, anxiety, and worry. There have been a few moments um, in the last couple months where it just feels like I don't even know how to handle what the future is. Like there's the kind of like health anxiety. And then there's anxiety of, is there even going to be a Bethel or a higher ed? Or was my job going to go away? What is happening to our country? Is the national fabric just rent permanently at this? Like, and then there's the church and really, and then there's my family and what's happening to my, and like, I've had to kind of learn something I should have learned a long time ago. Cause I talk all the time about not being fearful and being hopeful. Like, just learning to maybe simplify what is the challenge for today and not to be so caught up in these things utterly beyond your control, way too complicated for any person. to. And maybe let's let's focus on what is what we're going to accomplish today. What is the fear we're going to deal with today? What is the objective we're trying to accomplish today? Maybe that's another thing I've been maybe learning from quarantine. We'll see if this holds up. Right? <laughs> this would be a nice artifact to go back to that's in two right. years when I'm trying that's to wrestle right. with something. Do you have a life. second word, Chris? My second word is travel. Travel. Now, travel uh, doesn't does it share any? It has an e in it. That but does it rhyme and with R? Yeah, it, it does not. The, the the quest continues. Nothing but rhymes with here's kids. why I was thinking about that. The two of us were actually supposed to spend some time together with our family traveling uh, next month. We were going to be taking a short sports history tour on the East Coast. Uh, last summer, the two of us took a group of 20 plus people to Europe to study the histories of World War One and World War II. We've taught a World War One travel course. 
all that's falling apart, right? We're not taking our little tour out east. We're probably not going to do an adult tour next summer. That's going to get pushed off by year. Um, Bethel had already canceled semester study abroad programs. And last week it announced it's going to cancel the J-term trips uh, that people like us, we're not leading, but some of our colleagues were leading. So there's there's a lot that's being lost in terms of travel right now. Uh, I think one of our favorite travel writers and guides is a guy named Rick Steves, who's a Lutheran from the Pacific Northwest who's written guides and leads trips. Uh, he gave an interesting interview with the Washington Post travel section last month about what this is like if you're a travel guide and writer. And like the economics are terrible. He said that he normally has about 100 different tours going. So that's 2,500 people who aren't taking the trips they've saved for and dreamed of. It's 100 tour guides who aren't getting paid. It's 100 bus drivers who aren't getting paid. Think about the ripple effects for restaurants and hotels, right? And, you know, like he thinks they'll come back at some point, but, uh, you know, it's, it's worrisome. He's not sure. Like he wants travel to be accessible, not just something for the fabulously wealthy to do. But if airlines are only filling half and restaurants are only filling, like it's going to cause costs to go up. What really struck me, and, and this is why I'm kind of interested in Sam, is he said one of the things that lost, that's lost is that travel helps combat our tendency to be fearful. Uh, so, for example, he said that the most fearful people in our country are the people buried deep in the middle of it who have no passports. I've thought a lot about it lately, and fear is for people who don't get out very much, whereas the flip side of fear is understanding, and we gain understanding when we travel. So, again, I, I don't think this is a permanent condition, and time will tell what aspects of it solidify but i wonder if that makes sense to you like is there something lost about we aren't able to go places and does that actually make us not just more insular but more fearful people i think and i i think i can experience i absolutely actually and as you were reading that quote i was just like i've never thought of it that way yeah. but that's exactly it and it's not just you get to encounter cultures that are other i mean yes it is those things but it's even things like um, encountering situations where you need to step outside of your comfort zone. So I'll give you I'll give you some examples as we as we lead have led trips with students and and with uh, with with adults. Um, partially, it's for me is to be in some kinds of oh I have to actually like I have to lead people right. Um, so but normally I'm with when I travel I, I've traveled to Europe with you five times yeah five yeah. times I've traveled with my wife a few times both you and my wife are similar personalities where you're like you like to plan and take control so i get to kind of like i'm just kind of going along when we went last january i my wife wasn't there and i realized oh we're going to break up into groups and i i had to snap into the type of person i've never been on a trip with you which is like oh yeah i know how to do the the uh the subway systems i know how to do the paris subway system mm -hmm. i know how to do the munich subway system i can get you to where you want to go um so like like for me that's a big thing is like navigating learning to navigate places cuz i am a deeply anxious fearful person and the biggest example of this was not the last time uh three times ago when we were in europe um we had a student lose their passport yes right and you were leading everybody on a trip to versailles from paris mm -hmm. so i um volunteered as i should have <laughs> to like we're, we'll get this figured out while you guys are at versailles and we had one day to do this before we were gonna go so i who, who doesn't speak any french um had to figure out where a police station was mm -hmm. with this student. And I also felt like, okay, I have to actually like be like a real grown up. Um, so I had to navigate 
both how to get to a police station, how to talk to people to find it, how to figure out the paperwork, how to go to the um, the embassy or wherever you have to go to get a passport and like and to navigate those systems. And I'm the person who doesn't want to do this. And uh, it was really great for me because I it didn't change the fact it didn't get rid of any of my anxiety. But it is this moment that I can look back and be like, oh, I'm really kind of proud of myself because I, I'm i not that person. And I just – as I looked at the student, I was just like, one of us needs to do this and I'm not going to turn to you and say figure it out. It's like I am going to – I'm going to act like my wife would. I'm going to act like Chris would. So it 100, 100,000 percent does. And it again, it, and I think all the stuff about interacting cultures is too. But I also think even just navigating – unfamiliarity yeah exactly because i want to say it was really great for me that you did that too because i didn't want to do it um i mean as much as what you just described about me what what one thing i benefit with travel is i cannot possibly think that i'm in control mm-hmm. like i i might because I, I do plan right and i've mapped out everything and i have it in my head and then the airline decides we're not going to fly that flight to london and we're going to make put you up in a hotel or we're going to get there at one in the morning or uh, the uh, London metro system is going to go on strike and we're going to have to walk all the way to Victoria Station and take our long distance bus to Oxford and then get back. Like, it's been good for me to to realize that you don't have to be afraid of not being in control. And it's why it bothers me so much when people approach travel is we're going to take America with us everywhere so that it's like going to McDonald's. Like mm-hmm. everywhere you go is going to feel familiar. Like the whole point is to be unfamiliar, mm-hmm. whether that's cultural, linguistic, systemic, uh, political, whatever it is, like that, that's the power of travel. Even if you do it in this country, right? Like, but especially right. if you go to another. Well, and, and, and let's think about the story I told, cause that took place in Paris. Chris, what is the stereotype of Parisians vis-a-vis Americans? Yeah, you know, it's unfair, but somewhat unhelpful, standoffish, uh, sarcastic, unfriendly. These were the nicest people I've ever yep. met uh, across the board uh, in the police station, the nicest people ever, every business I went into to in my not even broken French because I don't know enough (laughs) French to speak broken French in my just I'll say it in English and hope somebody gets it like they were so nice so kind they were drawing me maps they were pointing me in directions um I love the people of Paris for that day yeah you end up depending on other people Mm -hmm. more which is a big part of um getting to know them okay Sam what's your second word so my second word and this is this is lightly sprinkled with uh with sort of covid but not really um but 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 i think we've experienced this differently so my second word is rewatch <laughs> rewatch rewatch does that rhyme with garrett's <sighs> no that does not rhyme with garrett's nothing rhymes with garrett's so um when we first started this uh, shelter-in-place quarantine, it was this opportunity for people to, like, get caught up on, like, oh, I never saw that movie or I never watched it. So that we, right. Because especially in a place like Minnesota, like, the weather wasn't great yet. Like, there was, you know, even if you were somebody who was going to go outside and take long walks, you mostly spent your time inside. But then we reached this point where I feel like we kind of caught up with stuff and we're, and we're looking around. And this brings us to to the world of rewatching or rewatching things as kind of comfort food, whether it's movies, TV, things like this. So I'm sort of curious, what are your are, are you a rewatcher, and what are your rewatch comfort foods? Boy, I am a rewatcher. Although it's odd, the first thing that came to mind when you said that is we actually just signed up for Disney Plus because of Hamilton, of course, and like we were looking through it and we were like. I can't believe all these things. Like, so there are a lot of things I have not watched that all of a sudden, you know, I, I was getting a little bored of Netflix and Amazon Prime. 
But then I started thinking about what do I actually want to rewatch? And it became like this nostalgia trip because mm-hmm. Disney is bound up with childhood for me. So it's animated movies. It's even really bad. I think pretty unfortunate ones. Like there's something called the three Caballeros. Oh yeah. Which my brother and I memorized that movie when I was about nine and he was seven. And I, I'm kind of, I don't know if I really want to watch it again, but I kind of want to watch it again. I would say, and I'm not talking about that movie in particular, yeah. but just all all of these nostalgia trips like that, like, be careful. Because if the, when, they're, when, when the experience of rewatching is great, it's the best, but sometimes it's not. So, like, like, think about whether you're okay with this being damaged. I'm guessing Three Caballeros, you might be okay with it being damaged. I'm kind of okay with that. Yeah, then, yeah. Then, then enjoy it. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I'm trying to think what's a TV series I rewatch over and over and over and over. I mean, like, I'll do things like Mad Men. I think I've probably watched two or three times through. The problem is that it's such a long haul, it's mm-hmm. hard to kind of get into it. What's more fun is kind of, like, I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes, the fictional detective. And there's this series of not great, but probably entertaining movies from 1939 to 1946 with Basil Rathbone and Sherlock Holmes. Again, I watched a lot in childhood. And like every 10 years, I'll just kind of get into Sherlock Holmes kick. But it's like background music. I'm mm-hmm. not really watching it. It's more I'm writing something and I'm listening to it. And I know that script by heart at this point. Um, the only movie like that is uh, The Third Man. That okay. I rewatch like every two to three years and like really watch it seriously. It's so. fascinating because your comfort food is like serious stuff. Even if you're not watching it super seriously, like I'm guessing those Sherlock Holmes things are there may be light a little, but there's there's a murder mystery, usually, yeah. right? Yeah, there's, uh, there's I mean, Mad Men, I, Mad Men, I still think is the greatest uh, TV drama ever in, in, in my mind. I love it, but... Man, the thought of like that being my comfort food rewatch, like there's it gets dark. That that's a little bit different. I mean, what what's odd actually now that you say that is the other movie I watch a lot is All the President's Men. I love that. I, I actually that, that's one of my comfort, comfort at all. Like it's it's dark and by the end of it, because it gets actually more um, more kind of frightening as you go. Like okay, but that actually gets to what I okay. wanted to talk about with rewatch because the reason I like to watch. All the President's Men a lot is I like hanging out with Woodward and Bernstein. Yes. <laughs> I kind of like to be like the third one on that, you yep. know. Um, so my rewatch uh, comfort food uh, is never something serious, right? Mm-hmm. I, it's comedy. So like I love I've watched I don't know how many times I've watched Parks and Rec. The show Community is mm-hmm. now on Netflix, which is a show that um, at its highs is unbelievably funny. Gets a little weak at the end, but it's still good. Um, the Detectorists is yes. a, this fa- phenomenal show. Um, I just found a way to watch the third season, which was great. Um, but the all-time great for me is The American Office. I actually oh, don't sure. know how many times I've seen it. I go to sleep most nights listening to an episode of The Office. I don't watch it, but I'm listening to it. I've seen – I know it backwards and forwards. I watch it the way a kid watches something where they just watch it over and over. Can, can I slip in – this is not my official third word, but it's related to rewatch, which is reboot. Would you be excited if they rebooted The American Office, which is often discussed. I'm not sure they're actually close to doing it. I would be perfectly ha- happy if – um. Okay, well, and this goes to something else I've introduced my kids to lately, which is in the spirit of like the Christopher Guest movies, if you took that same cast and said, let's do it, let's, let's create another world. Mm-hmm. I don't need to go back to Dunder Mifflin, mm-hmm. um, but like I would love to see those folks mixed in with other really good, especially improv, um, improv comics with great writers to do a documentary style show would be mm-hmm. great. I would love that. I don't know that I need to go back to Dunder Mifflin. 
You know what? You actually came very close to ending this. Christopher Guest, I think, might be the closest <laughs> That's true. To Christopher Garrett's we could possibly come up with. <laughs> that is true. So all this is to say, um, so I, I rewatch The Office all the time. My daughter loves The Office. My kids love The Office. Um, this week, we had to go drive a road trip, a kind of a thankless road trip on one of those really hot days to pick up um, five pigs worth of pork from a butcher on the 4th of July. Um, so our whole family was going because what else are we going to do? So I was like, what can we listen to? And I thought, I need to find a podcast that is like age appropriate, okay, for my kids. Because a lot of stuff I listen to I, is really funny, but it's like, eh, I don't really want to listen to that with them. So I started listening to a podcast which started last year called The Office Ladies. Are you familiar with this? It was uh, Jenna Fisher and, and uh, uh, Angela, Angela Kinsey. Right. Episode by episode rewatch, mm-hmm. deep diving into behind the scenes stuff. I am addicted. <laughs> I have listened to hours and hours. In, I mean, today is what, July 7th? Yes. Um, so I started listening on July 4th. I am way more hours. In, I, I could have listened to Infinite Jest at this point with the number of hours that I listened to. Well, I have good news for you. Do you know that Kevin, I think Brian Bum, mm-hmm. he, he has a Spotify podcast. He's hopping on board the Office Rewatch podcast. Love train. it. So more material for you. Is love coming. it. But, but I, I especially love the sort of behind the scenes elements of it and learning facts about it. And this is where it ties into Woodward and Bernstein. I love hanging out with, turns out, real life friends, Angela Kinsey and, um, and Jenna Fisher. It's great sounds great okay can i give you my number please three? do now you are the official rule keeper of nothing rhymes with garrett so i have a rule question am i allowed to propose proper nouns sure okay good because like, that'd be a way of cheating like our neighbor's name is actually gearkey so it's oh. really close to garrett's okay this is not a well we'll, we'll see uh, the proper name it's actually an improper noun too but uh, he's very proper is j j okay it's uh. one syllable Yes. Uh, none of the letters are the same. Not really at all. Does it rhyme with Garrett? No, I'm not actually very, I'm not trying hard at this point either. <laughs> Nothing rhymes with Garrett. So I, I think Sam knows, I would guess many listeners know, we just had a retirement of a long-serving president of Bethel, Jay Barnes, was our president from 2008 to 2020. So last week, Sam and I and dozens of our closest friends and colleagues lined a little bit of Bethel Drive, which is kind of a road, uh, and waved goodbye to Jay and Barb as they drove by on a golf cart. Um, so I, I just feel like before Jay has ridden off into the sunset of his new job in Arden Hills, uh, we have favorite memories of the Jay Barnes era, or maybe better of Jay Barnes personally, or Jay and Barb, because they really are a couple that go together. I do. Uh, uh, the first memory that I have of him was seeing his name. So he came to Bethel in the fall of 1995, mm-hmm. which is significant because I came to Bethel in the fall of 1995 as a freshman. So I remember seeing um, he, someone was speaking at chapel and they had a chalkboard where they used, this is how old I am. They had a chalkboard where they used to write, here's going to be at chapel. And it said Jave Barnes provost. Okay. And I had definitely, I don't know that I thought this, but I didn't know what a provost was. We just all assumed his name was Jay Barnes. Pro- like Barnes was his middle name. <laughs> right. Provost was his last name. We needed to learn what a provost was. Like Malcolm Jamal Warner. Right. Exactly. Why is he not a three-name person? Yeah. Um, but but actually, the, the memory that I have of the first time talking with him is when I was a junior at Bethel, I went to a program called the Oregon Extension. Mm-hmm. And I uh, it was a, a one-semester program where you live in the mountains of southern Oregon in this old logging camp and you just read like crazy and you get away from um, technology, you get away from media, things like this, and you just read great books and have great conversations. And when I came back from that, um, 
one of the profs had come through Bethel recruiting. And one of the things you do when you recruit for a program like that is you connect with the administrators at the school because you want to be in good standing with them. And uh, Doug Frank was the person uh, who was doing the recruiting. And he apparently had talked with Jay about talking about the program. And I was the only student from Bethel who had gone. Mm -hmm. So he had talked with with Jay about me. Mm -hmm. And then I got asked that year to speak to the to a committee of the board of trustees about the Bethel Honors Program because I was also in the first group of honors program students and speaking at this meeting were Jay Barnes and and me so <laughs> so I, I don't remember what I said and it's like I didn't know what the trustees were enough to know that I should have been nervous about that There's um, another last name of someone <laughs> right yeah. there's a family right maybe a band yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and so I, I spoke with them at, I, I spoke at that and then. Afterwards, the meeting was over. Jay pulled me aside and had this all these questions about the Oregon Extension. I felt like ever since that moment, I feel deeply connected to Jay. And I mean, Jay's Jay's wife worked in the Ask Office um, uh, when I first came here, so I know feel like I know Barb really well. Mm-hmm. But just the fact that as a uh, uh, I'm going to call myself an unremarkable student, and I don't mean that's that I wasn't a good student, but like I'm just another person mm. here. I wasn't like a a star in any kind of way. I wasn't on any teams. I wasn't, uh, I didn't do anything that would make me stand out to anyone else. But the fact that he got to know me and he actually was the, I I was perfectly happy not to talk to this person as I am with most people, (laughs) but he actually approached me and wanted to hear about my experiences in Oregon. And like that, that we had like a, a genuine conversation there. And that, um, to this day, like it warms my heart to think, Oh, like, Someone in that position, you know, would reach out to students. And so I think about the way our students have over the years had this sort of, uh, per, as a group, this sort of personal affection for the the person of Jay. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, like, that's right on the money. Like, mm-hmm. that's very real because that's how he feels about them. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, a genuinely curious person, which I never know how administrators have time to do this, but like would want to actually ask a question of a student about their experience. Like one of my favorite memories was, I think it was, a, it was like about this time of year, it was early mid-July or something. And our offices used to be a lot closer to the president's office. And uh, I don't know if Jay just knew I was there. It was just actually doing the rounds or something. I came by and wanted to chat and I asked him what he had a couple of books under his arm and I asked him what he was reading. It was a commentary on Deuteronomy. And he said, like, I just need to understand Deuteronomy. I'm like, you've got other things. <laughs> what to a do. great but, sentence though. <laughs> and, like, it never would occur to me or like, actually I was reading a book about the old Testament, but it was this kind of funny book about a guy who just decided he tried to live all the laws of the old Testament. And like, but Jay's version was to actually read a serious scholarly commentary on Deuteronomy, which um, spoke well to him and less well to me. My favorite memory of Jay, though, is it, it's a barb too, was we live in Roseville and they lived in Arden Hills, so not too far away. But um, I went, when it was still open, it's closed now, there's a Baker's Square, which is a restaurant um, that I think is just in Minnesota. I don't know if it's anywhere else. It used to be called Pop and Fresh when I was growing up, and that changed its name. It's closed now, but there's a there was a Baker's Square location in Roseville. And about every six to eight weeks, my wife would send me out for pie. We didn't really like the food at Baker Square, but we liked the pie. And so I showed up at like 9.30 at night or something to get pie. And I walked in, and who walked out but Barb and Jay Barnes. And it was a Wednesday night, and they were there for supper, but mostly because you get free pie, I think, with the supper. And I felt bad because I felt like... you don't want to see me. You don't want to see anyone from work. This is your like private. I feel like I was encroaching on something, but it also is a good reminder that I come back to that. I think 
as hard a job as being provost and then president is and all consuming as it is, I think Jay is basically unaffected by it. Mm-hmm. Like my guess is that's probably something they had done for a long time. I mean, it was just one thing they do as a couple. And I'm sorry that I interrupted it and, and, and infringed on it, but I, I we've talked a little bit about work-life balance here, but like to find a way to do that and as tired as I think he probably was at the end, but like to still be recognizably Jay, like the kind of guy who would go to Baker Square for pie with his wife, like actually like, speaks really well to him. Um, and that's a memory that I will hold on to. And uh, I just really love pie. Too. Yeah. Like we serve Sounds pie. Sounds good. We should wedding. get pie after this. <laughs> wow. I wish it wasn't closed. I know. Okay. Sam, there's room for one more word. This is our last chance for this episode or otherwise the, the search continues. What's your third? All word? right. And I, I told you I had, one quarantine word, one sort of lightly quarantine word, and one that wasn't, but I feel like it's mildly controversial. Oh, the boy. word is not, but yeah. I've thought a lot about how to say this. Um, so my word is good. Oh, okay. Uh, it starts with G. Mm-hmm. It's a hard G. I, if I could make it really good or very good, I would say that, but okay. that's two words, yeah, right? That's two words. So good. Um, and this ties into something that you said uh, you mentioned earlier, um, which is this, and I'm going to actually, I'm going to seed the floor really quick because right. I want to get. Is this going to end our friendship? No, 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 okay. no. Because I want what I, because it's not about the thing that I'm bringing up here. This okay. is just an example. Okay. So you talked about how you got Disney Plus this weekend. Yes. To watch Hamilton. Have you seen it yet? Oh, yeah. Tell me about, tell me what you think about Hamilton. I, I think Hamilton's amazing. Like, there was actually a lot of controversy over Twitter over it because, like, historians were upset that it doesn't say enough about slavery. I think Hamilton's great. I thought it's the best televised play I've ever seen. Like, I liked all, all I'd ever heard was the music. I'd never seen the play. I've never been to a theater to see it. It felt like I was there as much as it ever could, and I thought it was wonderful. Okay. I thought it was good. I thought it was really good. <laughs> And, like, I just want it to be okay that I thought Hamilton was good. I, I, I'm purposely not saying, like, being too effusive about it. At the same time, I'm not saying I didn't like it. I don't like musicals, and I liked it. I thought it was really good. I've thought about it since I saw it. Um, I remember – and I want to I talk about how I came into to Hamilton. I remember when this first came out on Broadway – and there were so many people who were really excited about it and mm-hmm. talking about it like it was the most revolutionary piece of art that's ever been created. Yeah. And I remember seeing a clip of it that shows how old I act on CBS Sunday morning. And I was like, oh, it's just a musical. Like it turns out it's just a musical. It's not a revolution. It's yeah. just a musical. So I was going into this this weekend. Um, I'm even the one who suggested to my family, hey, let's watch this. This is now available. And I'm ex- I was excited to watch it. And I was going in thinking, this is not, I'm kind of annoyed when people get too effusive about it. So I'm like, I'm probably not going to like this. It's just another musical. And I was like, oh, it's really good. It's really good. But like, that's all the further I want to go. And this is where I'm going to pull it away from Hamilton. I want to live in a world where it's okay to be like, it was good. It was, and I don't mean it like it was fine. I, cause I, that word I'm, if I had told you, if my word was fine, that's an insult. Really good, but but is that okay? Is it, it okay that I'm not on the polls on this? It is totally okay. I I see this in myself that I need to be okay with more things just being good. I mean, this is maybe my counter to the polarization of America. It's okay for something to be good because that competence is to be desired and professionalism is to be desired and entertainment is to be approved of. Like it doesn't actually have to change the world. Like so, I will say as someone who 
probably is inclined to use stronger adjectives than good to describe it. I would also say the disappointing part of watching Hamilton instead of just listening to it is like, oh man, it really, it, it's a Broadway show. Like it, I mean, when it was just the soundtrack to what you imagine, it's different. But now it's like, oh, this is kind of a theater nerd's version of what the Founding Fathers would be like. But it's a theater nerd who also does like freestyle hip hop. Mm-hmm. But like, there were a couple it, moments, and I want to call out one of them that I was like, oh, I've never seen that, yeah. and it was amazing. And 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 it was the scene with the the Skyler is that their name? Skyler sisters. Yep. 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 Right where they play the story one way and oh, then it and like then reverse they reverse it. it. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that is brilliant. Yeah, like that was such a cool scene the way they did that. But a lot of it, like you, when you see it and you see choreography and costume and staging and sets, right, and props attach you, like, oh, this becomes play-like. And you realize how much they actually are cribbing from established standards of here's how you do theater mm-hmm. even as they're being like genuinely innovative i mean in some of it like you kind of realize oh this is a broadway play and one of the most revolutionary things is that i think a good chunk of america watched it this weekend yes. that something this popular that was and I, i'm sure they made a ton of money by yeah. putting this on disney plus but like i was thinking yeah i, I remember wondering like oh is it gonna be like 15 years until i see a version of <laughs> hamilton because there's so much money in withholding this from people and instead that it was available i thought that was really cool now here's the thing i never want to hear mm-hmm. from somebody is i don't want to hear from somebody who has seen it live and especially i don't well no it's fine i'm here from somebody, yeah. but what i don't want to hear them say is like Oh, it's just not the same unless you've seen it live. And especially I don't want them to say you have to be in the room where it happened. Oh my goodness. I don't want to hear that. Okay. No, I, I, I agree. Like I the big problem with Hamilton was this idea like you've got to take out a second mortgage to go right. see this, right? Like the fact that it's available is it was deeply democratic. Yeah, it was fantastic. So here's the other thing I was gonna say. Like I think it meant so much to me because I heard it in twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. Right. It is very it's as much an artifact of the Obama era as anything possibly could be. And it's also this kind of like, oh, that's what life was like before 2016 election, right? Like I, I listened to it on my fall sabbatical right before the election. And so I wonder would it hold up? And I think there's a little bit of that, like, does this still work? And I think that's where some of the criticism was coming. I think there are people like, especially on the left, who feel like this is too mainstream. This is too fawning over the founding fathers. It's, it's steering away from slavery too much. And then there's the part of the sake, is there anything that we can have as like a shared national experience mm-hmm. anymore? And like, I, I'm, I'm actually glad to hear you say your sense was like, everyone seems to be watching this. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. actually, that's how it felt in 2015. Like, it took a while to get around. But like, I couldn't predict by someone's politics or Facebook shares, like whether they would like Hamilton or not. Like, people generally just seem to like Hamilton somehow. And I don't think this is the most important thing in life, but I think if a national community matters at all, it's got to have a few like kind of common threads binding it together. And maybe we can bind it together around the fact that it's really good. And that's enough. Yeah, that's okay. Well, or maybe it's just like shared love of this podcast. So are we still friends? Like I honestly, I got to tell you, Chris, I thought a lot about, do I do this? Do I, because like this is, yeah. Well, I want to, because I know, I know you are a fearful person and like, I want to assuage those fears. Like it was totally fine. You said that. I know exactly where you're coming. I'm just proud of you for watching it and for finding it good. Because like, I, I think if, if you had said it's terrible, we'd be having a different conversation. Right. And I would be the exact problem that I'm talking about because yeah. it's not terrible. It's really good. Yeah, it really is yeah. good. And yeah, that, that's, that's just 
I was going to say fine. Is that <laughs> We're so menacing. I love how loaded that term. That term's a weapon. Well, they'll have to save that for another episode. We'll see if that rhymes with Garrett's. But we're out of time on this week's up, this month, this half year, this year. Is that we'll see how long it is before the next one. But I had a great time doing it. Sam, thanks for, it's thanks been for fun. joining us. Listeners, thanks for listening along. Uh until next time, this is Chris Garrett's for Nothing Rhymes with Garrett's.